I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 12. This is as a corollary passage to our study in 1 Corinthians. Romans chapter 12. We're going to read the entirety of the chapter. Our focus is on verses 1 and 2. And then... 9 and following, but we are not going to just skip 3 through 8. We're going to press in through it. Romans chapter 12, beginning verse 1. We'll read the entirety of the chapter. I'll bring out the New King James. This is my custom. God's Word says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each man a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith or ministry. Let us use it in our ministry. And he who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor giving preference to one another not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulations, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will keep coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I really only had two points. <clears throat> then I couldn't sleep last night. And so for an hour and a half early this morning, I spent some more time in this text, and now I have three. And if the sermon was probably for next week, I might have four. But let's look at it very quickly. We're going to back up in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I'm sorry, chapter 8, and look at the sentence that we're using really as a summary of chapter 8, 9, and 10. And this I want to ingrain in your thinking over these weeks that we spend in these three chapters. These three chapters are not disassociated from each other. In fact, if I were the one dividing the chapters, I would have made them one. Because they are a singular thought that's driven by this simple phrase. And that is, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And you've heard it last week, you heard it the week before, and the week before, maybe the week before that. To think about that a little bit. Yeah, the week before that. And you're going to hear it a couple more weeks coming. Knowledge puffs up. But love edifies. This is the manner in which Paul is going to deal with multiple issues in the church. That if we will approach these issues, these seeming dilemmas that come up in the church, and they've come up in multiple churches, it's not isolated to Corinth, it happened in Galatia, it happened and Paul foresaw it happening in Rome. Um, we see it in multiple passages of Scripture. Uh, it was a recurring in Philippi, or at least the Philippians were at least exposed to it. And we find that this principle 
is going to resolve so many of those issues that we cannot lose track of it in the church today. It is the resolution, the solution for the believers in Jesus Christ to resolve much of the conflict that occurs amongst us and within us. That we understand that knowledge, which is, in Paul's mind, not complete knowledge. It is this knowing the facts kind of knowledge, which is dangerous stuff. It is, I am familiar with the storyline. I'm familiar with the the uh, words on the page kind of knowledge. And he says that kind of knowledge, if someone thinks he knows something, he doesn't yet know anything. It says in verse 2, if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. It is that kind of knowledge that has not been mixed, balanced, tempered by biblical love that is so dangerous. It puffs us up. Oh, I know, I know, I know. And of course, in the book of Corinthians, you have been inundated with that phrase, don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? For the Corinthians were claiming to have that kind of knowledge, but there was no evidence amongst them that they ever tempered it with love. They didn't really know. And so it came out in the first issue, which was, what do we do about these opportunities to either exercise my Christian liberty and eat whatever I eat because idols are nothing, or should I worry about the conscience of a weaker brother or an unbeliever? And of course, the obvious answer is, I'm going to temper my knowledge of my liberty with love. He uses then an example from his own personal life that we studied last week. Here is all, here are all the rights of the apostle. Here's all the rights of the preacher of the gospel. And we can stack them up and he gives the full evidence of that. That they're there and we see it from Old Testament passages. We see it from the mouth of Christ himself. He who ministers the gospel should live from the gospel. But just that knowledge of that is an immature thing. When it becomes mixed with biblical, godly, sacrificial love, we conclude, as Paul did in chapter 9, verse 15, but I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me. It would be better for me to die than anyone should make my boasting void. Yeah, I have all those rights and privileges. They have been set aside by God's Word. I can claim them, but I choose not to exercise them because this ministry is not about me getting what I deserve. It is about seeking out the opportunities to give to others what they don't deserve. That's what the ministry is about. And if I'm waiting for a congregation that's deserving of the Gospel or uh, audiences deserving the gospel, none will ever arrive. For none of us deserve it. Hence, it is grace. And we have a ministry of the gospel of grace. And so rather than claiming and exercising these rights, Paul says, listen, maturity calls us to sacrifice them. And he has some reasons. We want to look at these reasons first. What are some of the motivating principles of Paul in demonstrating a willingness or a desire to edify others rather than to puff himself up? We have several statements made here in chapter 9 and in chapter 10, there were others already made. 
But we're going to look at these that are here before us and that are stretching into the weeks to come. And I want to pick up in verse 18. He says, What is my reward then, that when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge? That's what he wants to do. Why? And that is the, the question I want to answer first. Why? Why should I sacrifice my rights, my rightful claims, Paul shares, several of these are positive. The first one and one other one is somewhat negative. That I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. The fact is that once I start saying, I deserve this kind of treatment in the gospel, Paul recognized where that road would lead to. And he says, I don't want to be known as an individual who's abused my authority in the gospel. Yes, I possess those. I choose not to exercise them because to do so walks me on a road to abuse. And it is a very, very, very fine line and therefore it's a line that I want to avoid entirely by going as far as I can the other way and say, I don't charge for anything I do. I don't want to claim any of those rights of an apostle Perhaps I may be tempted to abuse that authority. And that would damage the work of Christ in people's lives. And even if I am of such strong faith that that doesn't tempt me, the fact is, is my concern is not over whether I am tempted to abuse my authority, but whether others view me as abusing my authority. And since Paul's just talked about not charging for the gospel, let's talk about that a little bit because that's, even to this day, a valid, and I want to say that, it is a valid complaint against the church. They're just after my money. It's valid because in so many places, that's exactly what's going on. And that is the claim. And to be able to go out and minister and say, well, we're not asking for that. Yesterday, my family, I sat down and watched Flywheel, um, one of the Sherwood uh, Baptist Church Ministries movies that put out. It was actually the first one. And in that is a scene where this used car salesman is having a difficult time and going to church. He's going to tie this time. He's actually going to go to church once every other week or so. And he goes in and a horrible thing happens. They pass an offering plate. And he feels he can just see the plates coming towards him. He's feeling the tension. He finds an offering envelope and puts it in the plate. It's empty, but no one else knows that. It's a compelled. He's being almost forced, pressured at least, to give some evidence that he's giving. I'm so thankful for an 80-something-year-old preacher that came up to me about 15 years ago and said, why are you taking an offering? And I looked at him and I said, because that's what we always do. We're Baptists. (laughs) Sometimes you should take two, right? If it wasn't enough the first time. He's like, what is the message you're communicating? And if your people want to cheerfully give, they should give. Period. His wife and I prayed over that and talked about it. And I was like, yeah, this is ridiculous. And that's why from the beginning of this church, we've never taken an offering. That's why we finally figured out we shouldn't be charging anything for anything we do. For this community and for one another. Because the perception of the world is they just want to get something from me. Because that is what's in their heart. They assume that's what's in the heart of the church. What can we get from these people? 
And we want to communicate an entirely different message. Radically different message. And that is, we don't want anything from you. We want only to give you. We want to give you the gospel. We want to give you our lives. We want to give you our ministry. We want to give you everything we can. We want you to have eternal life. And we want nothing in return. Nothing. Because we don't want to abuse the authority of the gospel. Could we ask for it? Yes. Do we have the right to demand that? Probably, yes. But why exercise it when there is so much more that needs to be done? I love Peter when he was dealing with Simon, the former sorcerer, who says, how much do I pay you so that I can do this for people? Now, I know that there's a lot of condemnation on Simon. I mean, Peter actually, Simon Peter did get on him and said, may you perish with your money. Um, But his heart was, I want to give this to people too. And he was still thinking in the old world ways. And he says, how much do I need to pay you to get this ability to give the Holy Spirit to whoever I touch? And oh, Peter's words, oh, what a change of heart. And you see Simon's repentance. Oh, I pray, don't let that happen to me. I don't want to, you know, my thinking is wrong. I'm sorry. I didn't understand. Peter's, when Peter just says, your money is worthless and it's, and it's corrupting. And so the first why is that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. The second why, verse 19 of the same chapter, though I am free from all men, I've made myself a servant to all. Why? That I might win the more. He's going to repeat this statement again on, on several occasions. Um, he's already said it in chapter 8. He says it again in chapter 10, verse 33. The very last verse of that chapter says that they may be saved. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. That one of the motivating forces of of a true minister of the gospel, of a true believer in Jesus Christ who has surrendered himself to God and counts all things God's and it's not his own, is that I have this desire and it is not for my own success, but it is that I might win them, not to a follower of me, not to become a member of a church, but to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would engage ourselves with this motivating answer to the why question is that we might win more to Christ. That they might be saved. Thus, I present myself not as their authority, but as their servant. Not as better than them, but as viewing them as worth all my time all my energy until they prove otherwise. And so he is moved for the opportunity to win more. We're going to talk a lot more about that in about three or four minutes. Let's look at the other motivating forces. Why do this? Verse 23 says, Now this I do for the gospel's sake that I may be partaker of it with you. And this is going to be the positive side of the same kind of statement he's going to make at the end of chapter 9. Uh, let's read that, chapter 9, verse 27. It says, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Wow. You mean exercising my Christian liberty can even bring about disqualification in my own life? Yes, that is exactly what he says. He's even concerned about that in his own life. I don't want to be out there ministering and stand before God and him saying, I don't even know you. 
You're disqualified. You might say, wait, he's been talking about being disqualified for the ministry. I don't think so. Read chapter 10. Let's see what he's talking about being disqualified from. He gives an example of Israel. He says, listen, um, you know those Israelites coming out of Egypt? They all crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They all were follow, followed a cloud and a fire. They all were baptized, he says. They all had spiritual food. They all ate the manna. They all drank water from the rock. That rock was Christ. But verse 5 is a frightening thing. Having experienced all of that from God's good and gracious hand, showing His power, verse 5, but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They went into idolatry. They went into sexual immorality. And Paul says, listen, these are examples. We're going to study this a lot more next week, providing we get through this week. (laughs) These are... I want to make sure that I am walking humbly before my God, not seeking to exercise my rightful liberties, but rather to exercise myself as a servant of the one true and living God, which means that I'm going to picture Christ to others and Christ's love was sacrificial. He gave up all of His rights that I might be a child of God and I want to do the same. I want to be like Christ. The alternative is a dangerous road. We are warned of in other books of the Bible, including Galatians, including Ephesians, if Hebrews and James and others are we no longer partakers of the gospel with others. He wants to make sure he's part of this wonderful community of grace. Paul himself is concerned that if he starts down that road, he's putting in jeopardy the faith that he has put in Christ. Or he'll start putting it into these things. And then we come to yet another statement. That's tied again to chapter 8. And this is what ties it all together. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now we go to chapter 10, verse 23. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Why do we do this? Because we want to build something up. We want to build something up. Not this puffed up thing that under the first examination by our Lord and Savior just deflates. We want to have something lasting and enduring that's going to be built up. He says, listen, I'm interested in edifying the church. I'm interested in seeing her built. And that means established. That's putting work into the foundation of it. Putting work into everything that is built on it. And hence his warning, hey, you all be careful what you build on the foundation of Christ. I know the popular thing right now, especially in the sports area, it seems like are these uh, big bubbles. <laughs> the big domes made out of fabrics. And I remember um, the Minnesota particularly who had a really tough snowstorm and it collapsed. And the Vikings had to go play, of all things, out in the snow outside. It was horrible. I remember the days when the Vikings always played outside. We, we, we were tougher because of it and a better team. Why do I say we? They. Why do we always call the team we cheer for ours? Like we own a part of it. Maybe if you're a Green Bay Packer, that's about it. All right. A big bubble. All it takes is a little weight, a little puncture, and it deflates. Is that what your Christian life looks like? That once God examines it, once God puts some pressure on it, once God starts popping holes through it, that it's just going to go flat before Him. Paul says, I'm not interested in that kind of 
ministry. I'm not interested in that kind of Christian liberty. I'm not interested in that kind of walk. I'm interested in building something that endures. And I want to make sure I edify. And these are His motivating forces. And they are powerful. I want to make sure that I don't... I'm not viewed nor that I go down this path of abusing my authority. I want to make sure there's many who can hear the gospel that some can be saved. I want to make sure there's nothing in my life standing in the way of that happening. I want to make sure that I'm a part of the work of God and not disqualified from it. I want to make sure that I'm building and not inflating. When pastors get together, they love to inflate. I've been to pastors' fellowships, and they sit around and ask silly, ridiculous questions. Here's what pastors' fellowships sit on: How's your offerings? How's your attendance? What's your Sunday school like? They don't ask what we're teaching like that. They want to know those numbers. And you know what the propensity is? You know what the just natural inclination is? Is, okay, what was Easter's um, attendance? Uh... Oh, yeah, we're running about 70. Because that was that high service. You see, we like to inflate. And Paul says, I'm not about inflation. I don't want to inflate a big bubble. I want to build something enduring. And that might mean just 12 people. If you think that 12 people, building up 12 people is failure... You just called Christ a failure. He picked 12 men. I'm going to build you guys up. I'm going to tear out the foundation of the world in your life. And I'm going to put a foundation of truth in there. And I'm going to die for you. And you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And you're going to be built up. And you're going to be pillars. Pillars. It means you're going to be able to stand against persecution. You're going to get beat up. And walk out smiling that you are counted worthy of suffering for the gospel. You're not going to shut up. You're not going to hole up. You're going to put it out there. And if by God's grace, he gives me 12 people like that, then praise the Lord. I'd rather build than inflate. Let this be our motivation for the Christian living. Do you sit there and lift, list off your Christian life with inflation? Just a bunch of air? Or do you have some substance that you're building with? Point two. <clears throat> That's the why. And it's important to answer that question first. Now we want to talk about the how. In verse 19, he talks about, though I am free from all men, I've made myself a servant to all. And he begins to list off some examples of that. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. There's that motivation again. I told you it keeps coming up. To the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake. That I might also be a partaker with it, with you. In it with you. Of it with you. He goes on. Do not you, you not know. There it is again. That same question. Don't you know this stuff? You the great Corinthians are going to exercise all your liberties. Don't you know something about people who are running in races? Those who run in a race all run. But only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate, that is, is under control in all things. They do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown, therefore I run thus. I am living the way I am, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline myself, my body. Now let's put this together to get the how. We got the why. It's splattered in there with all the how. We have 
the why. And that is critically important that we get that first. If you don't have the why, the how isn't going to make sense and you're not going to do it well. And this has been the problem with the how all along in the church. We've abused and manipulated and twisted and, and ruined the how because we never understood the why. We never got that this is not about me exercising my rights. This is about me humbly loving others to build them up. Once I get that truth, knowledge puffs up, love edifies. Once I get that, the why, that it's not about me, it's about them, then the how how makes sense. Here we go. We come into a a section of verses that has been horribly abused in our day in the church by the Christian community, I should say. I don't know that it's being taught from pulpits, but it's being lived and defended by Christians. They take this portion of Scripture and say, you see, Pastor, we have to go out there and be like them to reach them. And the only way you're going to reach kids at the state park is if you go out there and skate and have weird hair and have wild clothes. You can't possibly go out there and sit with a Bible and a couple of Gatorades and in a... Do you dress like that? In a polo shirt with no tattoos and no spiky hair. Can't do it. you got to look like them if you're going to be able to reach them. And they use these verses. Oh, to the Jew, I'm becoming a Jew. To a skate parker, I'm becoming as a skate parker. To the drunk, I'm becoming as a drunk. To the rock and roller, I'm becoming as a rock and roller. To, and they go on right down through the list. And I've spoken to young people. I've spoken at camp ministries for years and years. And this is their response to me. I'm doing it because I want to reach them with the gospel. And I said, there's no difference in your life to reach them with. When you look like them, talk like them, Act like them. Do the same things they do. What are you reaching them for? And we talked about this. Where's the difference? And they use this principle that they have pulled out of here and totally missed because they didn't get the why. Back in the five years in the ministry when I didn't have kids... I was told by some people, you don't get it. You can't help me because you, you, you haven't had that experience. But somehow, without the wisdom of ever having kids, you can't understand anything the Bible says about children. And yes, I preached for a few years without any kids. I was an assistant, but I still had opportunities to preach, and I wasn't afraid to mess that up. I also had people... Back when I was really poor, and, and by the way, um, I was really poor. We were poor. And um, I had people with money say, you just don't get it, Pastor, because you've never had a lot of money. You, you're kind of, you don't understand high finance. And I'm like, well, I think God does, though. I think he gets it, and I think the principles are still there. And I preached on that even when I was poor. I would do finance classes on how to care for your money, things like that. And the idea is that somehow we have bought this philosophy. If you haven't experienced it, you can't relate it. You can't relate to it, or you can't teach about it, or you can't address it. And that's very foreign. Based upon that, Jesus Christ can't teach us anything about sin. He never committed it. He never experienced it. What can He teach us? And yet we are told, in fact, in the passage that we're going to have in the next week or two, that uh, about how to deal with temptation, to look to Christ. We had no sin. Somewhere we need to strike this balance to understand that what it means to reach the Jews by becoming as a Jew wasn't that I'm going to go out and live a Jewish life. In fact, 
The one time that Paul did that under the instruction of the church in Jerusalem, it got him in trouble. <laughs> he was arrested. It didn't, it didn't bring anyone to Christ from what I can tell. It created a lot of, of argumentation. It created a lot of, of violence. It created a lot of division. It created a lot of excitement. But as far as I can tell, not one Jewish person was reached when Paul went into the temple on the instruction of James and John and Peter to say, go in there, uh, pay for some of these five guys who've taken a vow. You go in there, you shave your head, you do all the thing, you're purified, you go into the temple. And he went in there just like that. And some Jews from Asia who were in town recognized him, assumed that he had Gentiles with him in the temple area and create a fervor over it. Paul ends up arrested, sent off to Caesarea and eventually to Rome. So, is that what he's referring to here? Is that you should go out and try to live like a Jewish person and keep the whole law? No. But he's going to be in his walk, in his presentation, in his, in his dealing with them, loving them. I'm going to love them as the Jew that they are. And that means I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to approach them not with this high and mighty things, you know, you don't need the law. It's not the first thing I'm going to tell a Jew, is it? No, he went to them and he reasoned with them because he loved them. Oh, he loved them. I think he made a statement to God once in the Bible. Oh, that my salvation could be gone if all Israel would be saved. I would trade my own Eternity for theirs. He loved them, which meant he went into the synagogue when he entered a city and he took God's word and he reasoned from, from their own scriptures how Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. And then they kicked him out. And all those Gentiles who were sitting outside the synagogue listening, they wanted to hear that message and responded by faith believing it. You see, this idea of becoming as them is not that I'm going to conform my life to their life and look like them and talk like them and, and participate in the things that they're participating in, but rather I'm going to love them to the fact that I'm going to come to them where they are. And here is the how. You've got to go to them. You don't have to be them to go to them. You have to love them to go to them. Do you understand? We don't go to them and, and I, you know, I'm not going to go out and try to minister to homeless people by, well, i got to get dirtied up and wear old clothes and I'm going to walk around there hungry with a tin cup. You know, I'm not, that's not how you're going to reach them. You know how you're going to reach them? By loving them enough to go and talk to them. And to share with them Christ and to meet them where they are. To give yourself to them. This is what Paul's referring to. That I would deal with the Jews, I'm gonna, I'm gonna love them for who they are. I'm gonna deal with them as what they are. They're a Jew. And I'm gonna become what I need to in, in ministering to them. I'm gonna not put on these clothes for talking to Jewish people, put on these clothes for talking to Gentiles. When I go to the lawless, oh, here we go. Do I go out and be lawless? Cause I got one. I want to minister to people in prison, so I'm going to go murder someone so I can get a prison sentence. Then I'll be just like them. Do you see how ridiculous it gets? Once you start down that kind of reasoning out of this passage, oh, to reach them, I have to become like them. No. He says, I'm going to approach them as they are. And whatever in my life would keep them from Christ, I'm going to sacrifice it. Think, whatever in my life is keeping them from Christ, I am going to sacrifice it. Instead, we go out there and participate in their very sin, and I can think of nothing more that keeps them from Christ than seeing no difference in a Christian. When they hear the same words they use coming out of your mouth. When they see the same music they listen to coming out of your iPod. 
when they see the same things, that's going to keep them from Christ. That's the message here. And Paul gives us a little parenthesis to make sure we understand what he's trying to say to those who are without law as without law. Does that mean that he's going to live lawlessly? No. He's going to them as they are. Without the law. That's who they are. They're Gentiles. But he says, listen, I'm not going to be there without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. I'm not going to go to them as a lawless person, but rather I'm going to go to them recognizing that they are lawless and I'm not going to come and cram the law down their throat. Rather, I'm going to love them. I'm still living under the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ, brethren? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see the edifying nature of this kind of knowledge? He says, I've I got to call them to something. I've got to go to them. And I know that we think that we have witnessed to someone we invite them to church. Um, what you've just done is kept something between them and Christ. And that's this building. Inviting someone to church is not witnessing to them. I just want you to understand that. This building, this kind of structure, this kind of worship service could easily, and in fact is, a hindrance between men and Christ. And that's why we are not told to just invite them in. We are supposed to go to them. Your responsibility is to share Christ to them where they are at. But you have to be different than them to draw them to something. They need to see that your family life is different than their family life. Your relationship between anybody, between you and your employer is different than their relationship. Their relationship is adversarial. How little work can I get for the most pay? Your relationship with your employers, how much work can I do for that pay? They, want to, they need to see that difference. And if we love them enough, we will set nothing in their way between them and the gospel that we might win them. But we recognize that we are light in a dark place. That means we don't put a filter on it. We think that somehow we're going to take this lamp and we're going to do what the song tells us not to do. We're going to hide it under this bushel and we're going to go secretly sneak up to people and whammo, get them with the gospel. Because they can't tell we got a light under our bushel. I'm a Christian after all. Ha ha. Didn't recognize me, did you? Because I've been hiding it. Now tell me that's the way Christ wants you to preach and minister. But that's what our young people have been told. And, and I mean, I've had them argue with me. That's not what that means, Pastor. My youth director says that I'm doing the right thing. feel bad for the youth director because he knows some things but not well enough and he hasn't mixed it with love that edifies that concerns itself with others instead of ourselves fundamentally what I get from most of those young people when I really boil it down and if they're really patient and I work through it with them fundamentally the reason they do that is because that's how they want to live they're not doing it to reach anybody they're doing it because it makes them comfortable because they fit in with the crowd. And they want to live that way. And yeah, I can break down young people and get them to admit that, finally. But they always come up with this kind of a passage and say, I'm trying to reach my friends for Jesus. I have to be like them to reach them. No, you need to love them enough to keep anything, sacrifice anything out of your life that would keep them from Christ. that some might be saved. The second how, oh, by the way, there's some great examples of this. Um, and we read out of Romans chapter 2, and that is a tremendous statement describing that. Let me read it to you again. I'm not going to get to the, other, the third one. That's going to have to wait till next week. Let's go to Romans chapter 12. 
we read it earlier this morning, starts off with a great statement of sacrifice. Are you a living sacrifice? Does that describe your Christian life? A sacrificial life? You've given it up for Christ, for His brethren. We're going to come back to this probably in a few weeks when we get to the thinking, how people think. But here in verses 12 and following, it says, Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, disturbing the needs of the saints, giving to hospitality, bless those who persecute you, and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. And we look through that whole list and it begins really back in verse 10 with an honor, give preference to one another. And we see the sacrificial nature that he talks about in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. What does it mean? What does it look like to have that kind of sacrificial love that will build something that will last forever? To build the body of Christ, to build the believers up, to build the church. What does it look like? And he gives that extensive list, but fundamentally that we have humble enough to say, I will sacrifice any of my quote-unquote rights that I might reach you. It does not mean that I'm going to go out there and live in the same muck and disgusting things that you're living in. I'm not going to expose my mind over and over again in carefully crafted tunes to garbage coming in ideas from their music. And therefore, somehow that's going to help me reach them. Oh, no. I'm going to think and dwell on and pursue. What do they need? And yes, ministering to a Jewish person, a a religious Jewish person is different than ministering to those who are without the law, as he describes there. Chapter 2 of Romans, he talks about those that are without the law. But although we would see this need, what do they need to see in me? draw them to Christ. This doesn't let me walk around and live like them incognito so that I can sneak in and they start to trust me and then I can wham, hit them with the gospel. Because that doesn't work. The reality is that doesn't really work. Rather, how Do I reach them and still stay under this law of Christ? I'm going to love them by setting a standard and drawing them to it. I'm going to love them by going where they are and confronting them with what I need to confront them with in the manner in which it is done. And that can vary. It has to vary. That we think of others before ourselves. So we understand that this how is not by looking like, sounding like them, but by being different than them. And this is the real expression. And we need to do it over a long haul. That's obvious in verses 24 and following. What are you giving up? What are the Olympians giving up? What have they been giving up for years of their life? I was chiding, chastising one of our Olympians this morning because he was a big whiner. It was a terrible race. I lost. I didn't get a medal. 
Well, too bad. You shouldn't be smoking pot. Yeah, Mr. Phelps didn't get a medal. Too bad. But the other guy had this statement that says, I've been working my butt off for four years. What does that mean? I've sacrificed, and they do, they sacrifice incredible things to compete at that level for a gold hunk that I won't remember that guy's name two weeks from now unless it's in the paper and the media over and over again, which still won't influence me very much. Um, I'll still be laughing at the other guy who's crying. Um, But (laughs) think of what they gave up for that. The hours and hours and hours of practice and work and, and the devoting the entirety of their life to that singular pursuit. And this is what Paul describes. I see my children, my own children, getting up before 6 a.m. to go out there and not to go out there and play. They go out there to run miles. It's ridiculous. They're giving up some of the best things in life, which is sleep. And rest. And relaxation. Why? I gotta defend my district championship. I gotta do better. I gotta run faster, longer, harder. I wanna be bionic. But why? What's that gonna last? It's air. It's fluff. We, when we sacrifice, when we're competing like this, when we're giving it up for God, we do it with certainty. We do it for things that are forever. And how dare we complain? I don't hear any of these guys complain. In fact, they're kind of proud of it. Look how hard I worked for this. Oh, the Christians would have that kind of boasting. I am willing to give it all up for God. That is the boasting Paul talked about in this chapter. I would rather die than have anyone take it away from me. So, knowledge puffs up. Empty boasting. Love edifies, which gives substantive boasting. I look forward to an eternity. And so I bring my body, my life under subjection for Christ. I know why. I know how. We'll look at one more question next week. And it fundamentally comes down to, will I? Will you? Let's pray.